All right, so it is a great honor for me to be before you this morning to bring the word. Um, and I just want to give a little bit more background real quick um, before we get into, get into it. And um, so I am graduating in April from Grand Canyon. Um, I'm from the Midwest originally, and I met a girl from back there, and I'm going home to marry her. Um, and my program here at Grand Canyon has focused primarily on how to study the Bible, um, how to read the Bible, how to understand it, and then how to then communicate it. So um, I'm excited to put into practice some of the things that I've learned, some of the things I've experienced just being a part of the church uh, with working with Tim through outlines and just studying the text. I'm excited to be before you this morning. Uh, so I'll be married on July 1st, and following the wedding, um, my soon-to-be wife, future wife, and I will move to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I'll start classes at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, and she'll continue some classes as well. And so I'm excited. The reason I'm doing that is because, as Tim said before, I feel a call on my life to ministry, and I want to be prepared for that ministry, uh, and I have an exciting opportunity now to go and study even longer than I have already, and I'm excited to, to pursue that. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, so if you have your Bible, you're going to need to flip there, because um, I want you to read it as well. So turn to Philippians chapter 3, and before I read the text, I just want to give a little bit of background on the book, because we're jumping into chapter 3, and we've missed everything that's been said in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, and they're vitally important to understanding chapter 3. And so I'm not going to say everything that you could say about chapter 1 and 2 before we get started, I'm just going to intertwine them, and I'm going to use language that helps uh, bring out the meaning as we go. Uh, so um, just some background, the self-identified author is Paul. This is the same Paul who was, the Saul, who was called Saul of Tarsus before. Um, he was the, the Saul that was present at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The Saul of Tarsus who was confronted by God in Acts chapter 9. This is uh, the, the, the Paul that would go on to be the great missionary and teacher of the Christian church. Protecting and teaching Christian doctrine. And here we are this morning reading his text. Uh, of course they're inspired by God and they're, they're given to us for life. The audience is clear as well. The audience, is, it's addressed to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus in Philippi and with the overseers and deacons. So he's speaking to a very specific audience. At this time, Paul is in Rome um, under house arrest. Uh, he has been confronted by Jews who got him arrested by the Roman authorities, and he's appealed to Caesar, and he's awaiting trial in Rome. Um, and so at this time... He is experiencing suffering. He's experiencing pain. He's experiencing the desire to be free, to proclaim the gospel at the same time. What we'll see is that he's also experiencing and fulfilling his desire at proclaiming the gospel, even in his imprisonment uh, in Philippians chapter 1. And he calls them to look at his example and understand the meaning of sacrifice and, and understanding how important and how vital the role of sacrifice is in our lives as a Christian. And he goes on to even express it even more greatly in Christ's example in chapter 2. And so I'll intertwine those two as we go in chapter 3. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I know that we prayed a few times before, I just, I have to pray again, so pray with me real fast. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach Philippians 3, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in me to understand and to love uh, the Word, that I might be transformed by it. And I pray that out of the overflow of my heart, Father, I would speak. And I pray that everyone in this room wouldn't experience my words, but would experience the Spirit of God in them, transforming their hearts, transforming their minds, transforming the way they think and they view their lives. And God, we ask that this would bring about the obedience of faith, Father. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So it's a great honor to be with you this morning. So we're in Philippians chapter 3. He starts off by saying, he starts off by saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And we sang a song early, and I love that we sang it, because my, my heart was just full of, of the scriptures this morning, thinking about how we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. We're commanded, rejoice in the Lord, my brothers, he says. To write these things, or to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. And I want to draw attention to rejoice this morning, when he says rejoice in the Lord, or rejoice in God. And it's right for me to do so, because as the people are suffering, and as Paul himself is suffering, he's calling himself in the Philippians to rejoice in God. And so what does it mean to rejoice in God? Why does he use this word over and over again? And I find it difficult just by reading rejoice to understand what he's really trying to say because I don't use the word rejoice and neither do my classmates, neither do my friends, unless they're quoting scripture. So what does rejoice mean? To rejoice simply means to delight in, to be happy in, to find joy in something. So he's calling the Philippians to, in their suffering, in their present circumstances, to rejoice in God, to delight in, to be happy in God. I'm going to ask a question. I just want you to think about it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, you may have heard this phrase. It's a really old phrase, question and answer, from the 1600s, but it's been made popular in more recent days by uh, well-known pastors and by reading uh, authors like Tozer or all those other authors that are becoming more popular again. This, was, if this can be found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the catechism was used to teach 
children and new converts to help build a framework for how to understand what it means to be a Christian. What is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? And it asks questions and answers questions like, how can we know God? Where does authority come from? How can one uh, enjoy a relationship with God? So I'd encourage you to go back to a text like that and really to saturate yourself not only in the scriptures, but thinking through difficult questions. And it answers these questions with scripture. So what is Paul calling us to do? He's calling us to rejoice in God. That includes rejoicing in the present, in the future, and on into eternity. We are to find our enjoyment, our delight, our happiness, our joy in God. And let me tell you, let me share with you one way I think that this can manifest itself. It's difficult sometimes to have joy in God, especially in our suffering, especially in the busyness of life. We can enjoy God by reading and meditating on Scripture, by thinking deeply about it. Now, we don't use the word meditation very often anymore, but meditating quite simply means to have holy thought about something, to think intensely, to have thoughts of God and think of thoughts of the Scripture, to, uh, as Jesus would, uh, as Jesus fired back at Satan when he, when he told, you know, why don't you make these, these stones into bread, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. A way to delight and rejoice in God is to feast on his word because the spirit of God manifests itself in the words of God. And so as we saturate our hearts, our minds, our lives, the way we view things and understand life, God will be present with us and he will transform us. So let's move on. He says, to write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. He's simply saying, I can say this over and over again. I can repeat myself, repeat myself, repeat the argument, the things that I've said, because it's safe for you and it protects you. He knows that our hearts are prone to forget, and that we're prone to leave the God that we love as the hymn goes. And so he calls us again and again with repetition. That should say something about how we read scripture and how we live our everyday lives. We have to saturate ourselves continuously, whether we feel like it or not, in prayer and in scripture, meditating on the scriptures. Paul moves into verse two and he says, look out three times. And he he says to look out for these things, to look out for dogs, to look out for evildoers, to look out for mutilators of the flesh. And he's talking about one group of people when he uses these three words or phrases. And he's referring to the Judaizers. And you may or may not have heard of them before. The Judaizers were a group that claimed to believe in Christ. They claimed that you have to believe in Christ and you have to obey parts of the Mosaic law, including being circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul confronts these people in Philippians. He confronts them in Galatians even harsher with spending more time on that. And I'm here to tell you this morning that obedience to the law accomplishes nothing. And we're going to see that in the chapter itself. He calls them dogs. And this would have been startling because the Jews who would obey the law would call Gentiles who were disobedient to the law dogs because they were unclean, unholy. They were like dogs. And dogs roamed the streets, ate trash, lived on the streets, and were disgusting animals. It it would be like to refer to Gentiles or people who didn't obey the law as people who were unclean before God and unable to worship God. He calls them evildoers simply because they're unable to do any good. Mutilators of the flesh is a play on words with circumcision. 
He, he refers to circumcision as a physical sign of their destruction. And so this would have been a startling reversal for the Judaizers, those who obey the law. In verse, he goes on and says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So not only are they the dogs, they're the evildoers, they're the ones who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision, which includes you, because he's saying the church, the believers in Christ, are the circumcision. And I'm not going to explain what circumcision is if you're not quite sure, but we can talk afterwards. Uh, But it was a covenant symbol. It was a symbol of a relationship with God for the Jews. And the prophets talked about a coming time when circumcision would be replaced by a circumcision of the heart an inward reality rather than outward sign. He says, we are the people of God, is basically what he's proclaiming. The church is the people of God, not those who obey the law, not those who are ethnic Jews, not those who have converted to Judaism, but those who are believers in Christ are God's people. He goes on to say that we, that we uh, worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And that is why we have the circumcision. We have the spirit indwelling in us and we're able to offer our lives as sacrifices to God that are pleasing because he has sanctified and cleaned us of our sin and unrighteousness. And the spirit dwells in us. We don't boast, we, we boast in Christ and not ourselves. He's contrasting those two things, saying the exact same thing. We don't boast in ourselves. We have no confidence, no trust in the things that we do. But we have complete trust and confidence. Boast, or we glory in Christ Jesus. All of our hope, all of our trust, all of our confidence is in Christ. And he says, we don't, I don't do these things. We don't do these things. We don't boast in ourselves. But I have reason to, according to your standards, according to human reason and wisdom. I have reasons to boast. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So let me just go through and explain why these are reasons to boast. He was circumcised because his parents were faithful Jews on the eighth day, as the law required. He was born into the people of Israel, so he was a complete Jew. He was entirely a part of the people of God and had reason to boast because the people of Israel was God's possession, uh, prized possession among all people. It was his light into the world. It was the people he chose to reveal himself to and to proclaim the gospel to the people. It wasn't entirely clear in the Old Testament, but it becomes more clear in the New Testament. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And this is significant for two reasons. The tribe of Benjamin remained faithful to the Davidic king, to the true heir of the throne for the kingdom of Israel. Not only that, but all the other tribes besides Judah and Benjamin were wiped out in the exile. They were bred out. The men were slaughtered. The women were given to foreign men, and they were bred out of existence. And so then we're left with the Samaritans. They're not really completely Jews. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He wasn't trained in the philosophies of the day. His education wasn't tainted by uh, Greek philosophy. He was trained by Hebrews, by Jews who spoke Hebrew, and he understood the law, and he could read Hebrew. 
He was, a he was a Pharisee. We have a wrong view of Pharisees today. We rightly criticize them for not being obedient to the gospel and believing the gospel, but they were the protectors of the law in the day. They were the faithful interpreters, supposedly, of the day. And we can identify with that in some way where we, we come back to the Bible. What does it say? Now, they also added laws so that they wouldn't disobey the law, but they were teaching the people. They were the holy people who, who strive for holiness to obey the law. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he believed in his convictions and he believed in them so much that when people said that God became a man, he went after them and to kill them. He killed many Christians and had many arrested. He acted according to his convictions, condemning and destroying those who claimed what to him seemed like blasphemy. God becoming a man, how could that be possible? As to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that he was sinless or without sin when he obeyed the law, but that he primarily lived his life to try and obey the law. But this is where everything changes in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He has these reasons to boast in himself, but he says, but whatever I once counted as gain, the reasons that I had to put confidence in myself, I count them not only as neutral and, and just not effective, but they are a loss. He goes on to say, not only did those things, not only those achievements that I had to achieve righteousness before God, not only were they a loss, but everything was a loss. And we miss this part, but in chapter one, he's enslaved, he's imprisoned, and he's chained to guards, and he's suffering, and he says that all of my suffering has gone to proclaim the gospel. I'm suffering, yes, but my suffering has proved to show everyone and to tell everyone that I am suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm in chains for Christ. Whether I live or whether I die, Christ be glorified in my body. Life itself doesn't compare to what it means to know and to be found in Christ. He counts everything a loss. This echoes what Jesus calls his disciples to in the Gospels. He says, in order to be my disciple, you must lose your life in order to find it in me. You must hate your father and mother in comparison to how you love me. Christ himself is better than life. He goes on with even more graphic language and says that I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. The best translation in English without cursing would be dung 
the rubbish, dung, it's trash, it's filthiness. It's like filthy rags that we bring before God. The things that we think are so great, it's echoing in the songs we sang before in grace alone. It's nothing that we can do in order to bring ourselves to God. We worked our fingers down to the bone and nothing that we could do could cleanse us or atone us from our sin. It's all trash and worthless as an effort as righteousness before God. He goes on to say, to be found, to be found in Christ. He says, um, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And being found in Christ, being united to him, similarly to how we understand marriage, is something that Paul continuously says in all of his letters. To understand what it means to be a Christian is to be united to Christ, to be found in him. So that we're justified not by the things that we do, but by who Christ is and what he has done. We're justified by Christ's righteousness, being found in him. We're living in his life. And he goes on to say that we're dying in his death, symbolically. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We share in Christ's sufferings when we suffer as Christians and we experience a growing nature becoming like Christ. It is a way in which God tests us and builds us. We grow in the likeness of Christ. He goes on to say that we are glorified in Christ, that there is a future hope of being raised with Christ, just as we were symbolically raised from baptism. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In Christ, we also experience his resurrection not a resurrection of our own obedience or a resurrection in our own power, but we receive a resurrection in his likeness, in his life. When God looks at us, this, this makes this phrase come alive, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Christ, because in some way we're in Christ. I don't know how that works or how it makes sense completely, but somehow we're in Christ. Our accomplishments are Christ's. Our life that we live is Christ. The life that we die is Christ. The life that we're raised in after death is Christ. Insert the effect. (laughs) And what I want to say this morning about this text is that to know all of these things is not enough. To know that we can be found in Christ, to know that his righteousness serves as ours before God, to know that we can be raised in new life is not enough. Paul calls the people, the Philippians, to rejoice in God. This is, goes far beyond our obligations towards God and has everything to do with our heart and our affection for God. Paul is calling the people to reject two things. To reject thinking that God can't save us because we're too bad and too sinful 
and reject the idea that he can save us, but we're helping him do it. We're called instead to simply to rejoice in God, to delight and be happy in God. As the song goes, when it's hard to sing these things, help us sing. Help us rejoice in you, God, because he is our life and he is our salvation. When we read the scriptures and meditate on them, we have this beautiful picture of who God is and the work that he's done. And we're called then to behold it, to look at it. And so if you, in, first, in 2 Corinthians, I should say, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is talking about the new covenant in Christ, the, the life and the work that God is doing through Christ that far exceeds the work that he's done through the law. He calls us and says, and we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of God and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are beholding God, and as we see this beautiful picture of God, we're transformed by it. We saturate our hearts and our minds with the wonder and the glory of who Christ is and the work that he's done, and it transforms our thinking about who Christ is, and it works on our heart, and we overflow with joy and rejoice in Christ. However, the pride of man or the accomplishments of man are always working against our joy and our desire to love and worship God. And there's the constant struggle in this text is Christ far exceeds our ability and he's deserving of all praise and love and, and worship. And so I want you to take a moment real quickly to think about what are some things that you put on your list of accomplishment. What are some things that make you feel valuable and like you have something to be proud of, something to be, have value or, or something of that nature? I could think to myself, uh, I study the Bible at Grand Canyon and I'm graduating with a degree. I'm somehow great. I'm somehow awesome. Or I could say I'm standing up here with a microphone and someone gave me a, a pulpit and microphone and I'm, I'm up here teaching the Bible, able to read through it with you and Wow, isn't that awesome? Or even getting married, what an accomplishment that is. These things that we might think about that hold our hearts captive from worshiping and glorying in God and boasting in God's work, they're like filthy rags. Christ alone is able to save us. Christ alone has done the work to bring about redemption in our hearts and our lives. And so I want to call you this morning not to think of all the things that you should do in order to be accepted by God or, to, or even all the things that I need to do in order to love God better or to be more Christian. But I want to call you this morning to rejoice in God, to think about his sacrifice and his sufferings to think about his supreme greatness, that while we sinners went on sinning, disobeying God, happy to be in our filth, Christ came down and humbled himself. He was the sovereign king of the universe and still is, and yet he became a servant to those who were rolling around in our filth. And not only that, but he was obedient 
to the point of death and dying on a cross. And through his death and through his resurrection, we can be united to him, trusting and having faith in the work that he's done, not the things that we do. I know I'm running out of time, and there's a million more things that I want to say. But I want to give you 10 seconds to think about what am I holding on to that I find as an accomplishment in my own heart? Think for a moment. Okay, I'm sure you thought of something. So look at me. The passage this morning is a call to repentance. Don't trust in yourselves. Don't trust in anything within yourself for salvation, for life, for happiness, for joy. Trust in Christ and in his work to save you. And he is sufficient to do it. Be happy and delight in God. Well, I'm out of time. I'll pray with you before we go back into the song. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that you would use the word of God this morning to work in our hearts and to work in our minds to bring about the obedience of faith, Father, out of delight and happiness in you. And God, I pray that as we rejoice in you, that we would actively participate and be excited about the transformation that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. God, we love you. You are so glorious and awesome and powerful. What a beautiful and incredibly powerful and wonderful God you are. Capture us in awe and wonder of who you are, not just simple facts and knowledge about who you are, God. But I pray that you would use the knowledge of God to bring us to our knees in awe of you. Ask the scenes in Jesus' holy name.